The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 247 of The Real Food Real, we share with you how to prepare for your upcoming season and the key blood tests you need to optimize your health, performance, and longevity. We explore nutrients including iron, B12 and vitamin D, markers of blood sugar balance and how to identify your current degree of carbohydrate intolerance, inflammation, the total cholesterol heart health myth, and so much more. While incredible for prepping athletes, optimizing your pathology is essential for everyone. So make sure you tune in whether you view yourself as an athlete or not. P.S. Everyone has an inner athlete. Hi, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of The Real Food Real. Today, we are getting started with uh, part one in a new series that is all geared towards you getting prepared for your season. So whether you're a triathlete who's preparing for a sprint series season or you're getting prepared for your first full Ironman, whether you're somebody who's running and looking to go and start doing your first 5K or whether you're preparing for, for a marathon or whether you're somebody who's preparing for your next season on the footy field, what Steph and I discuss in this series will definitely be relevant to you and getting the most out of your training and your recovery. Would you agree, Steph? Yeah, I love that. So training and recovery, absolutely, um, but ultimately looking after your health and your longevity. So, you know, everyone's really keen on performance and recovery and I support that, but I think we've got to take a broader view as well um, and make sure we're having that that first goal of optimal health. Absolutely. It's something that a lot of athletes forget, right? That 
aside from being an athlete, you're a parent, you're a friend, you're a colleague, you're a person and your, your health in general is really, really important. Yeah, for sure. And so to set the scene with blood tests, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're nutritionists and we have our sort of shoot for the stars list of things we'd love you to look at to prepare for your season and to tick all these goals that we're sharing with you. But ultimately we can't refer you to a pathology lab. So, you know, it's going to be up to you to find hopefully a holistic doctor to join your team and allow you to get these blood tests done through your local lab. It will ultimately be up to them as to what goes through the Medicare gates and what out-of-pocket expense there is left, if any. So just know that I guess your experience is going to be dependent on who you see um, because it's widely different depending on the doctor's overall view. Yeah, definitely. But if you have some understanding of why you're asking for the blood test, which is one of the reasons why Steph and I wanted to start this series with this discussion today. If you have some understanding of why you're asking for the blood test, then it means you can have a decent conversation with your doctor about the meaning behind the testing, which is always going to help with getting them on your side and helping them to understand what your journey is and and what it looks like. You know, the reason some doctors are... uh, I guess, a little bit um, hesitant about offering certain blood tests is because they, A, don't understand why a seemingly healthy individual may be asking for certain inflammatory markers, which we'll get into in this discussion, or B, they may not know how to interpret that test result for you. So if they know that you are working with a professional, i.e., you know, a nutritionist, Steph or I, um, whoever it may be who, who has an understanding of these test results, if they know that you're working with somebody to help you interpret, then that will also help them in, um, in offering you the tests cover- and covering them by Medicare. Yeah, I agree. Like you don't want to take a list in and just say, here, can I have this? Like, you know, doctors have done decades of study and they don't want to be treated like a script writer. And I very much respect that. So I think understanding what you're asking for and and yes, having that conversation about your health goals and getting them on board on your team is going to make this experience positive for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So should we dive in? Yeah, I think so. Um, Let's start with some of those micronutrients that you know, we're often testing for because they play such a pivotal role in, you know, somebody's ability to become, you know, fat adapted. I think you've had conversations with Phil Maffetone on the show before about what are some of those roadblocks that may get in the way of fat adaptation, despite, you know, a great training schedule and and a wonderful LCHF diet. There are, there are factors that will get in the way. So, you know, Iron, firstly being one of those, or ferritin, so both of which determine our oxygen carrying capacity. Yeah, and I think a lot of people forget about this, you know. So iron's the dietary mineral that we need to transport and store iron in the body, and it's stored as that ferritin. And, you know, we it's also it plays a huge role in, in immune function as well. You know, I think it's really important to start here because well, it leads me to a conversation around the reference ranges mm. again because mm. unfortunately we see a lot of people coming into the clinic that have had these bloods done that have been told your iron levels are great, your ferritin levels are great, no problems. And when we look at them with a holistic lens, they're very much just on the border of, you know, almost anemia yeah. sometimes. Yeah. yeah, the way that I look at it is that 
your doctor is looking at whether or not you fit within a reference range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're looking for overt deficiency versus within a reference range. And Mm -hmm. if you're not in that state of overt deficiency, then they won't really flag it with you. Whereas, you know, we're looking at it from the perspective of you're somebody who's trying to get the utmost out of themselves. You're somebody who doesn't want to just, you know, fit within the norm. You want to be optimal. And somebody that's also, yeah, not 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 doing the norm day to day. Yeah, not yeah, dissatisfied with the average, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, so looking at the standard reference range isn't isn't always going to achieve the goal when it comes to preparing you for your season ahead. Um, and iron and ferritin are classic examples of this. So you know we're looking at a ferritin of around about one hundred for optimal status. Whereas that reference range that sits there on most lab reports, it usually starts at 30 yeah. and will go anywhere up to about 300, yeah. 250. Yeah, and these are obviously report. Australian units. So just to clarify, um, we might need to put like a little bit of a summary in the show notes for our international listeners. But, of course, the the point here is that, yeah, the, the roughly the, the 100 for the ferritin is a really great goal to work towards. Now, it's probably not so common that we would see this. Um, And, you know, in the case of iron, we're looking for, say, blood levels of about 20. And, you know, again, we're seeing much, much lower than this. Much lower. So then we need to think about, all right, you know, what are we going to do to improve this state? And we always go food first, of course. So, you know, we know that largely our iron is going to come from our animal proteins like beef and lamb. Um, so this is, of course, those for those that preference this from a dietary point of view. Um, and we always prioritise grass-fed and pasture-raised for both environmental sustainability and health reasons. And, you know, of course, we'll be talking to our clients about where they're at, so how many serves they're currently having and potentially making adjustments according to that starting point. Yeah. And this is where the conversation around gut health also begins mm-hmm. because we know with these micronutrients, not just iron and ferritin, but the others we'll get to, they're going to be so affected by digestive health and, you know, the ability to really break down foods and, and get those micronutrients out of what you're consuming. So this is where the conversation around what you're doing from a gut health practice standpoint starts to become um, an important one. Yeah, I see this a lot, especially with ferritin and people that have no real obvious reason as to why it would be low. Yeah, you yeah. know, in, in some women who have of menstrual cycle age that are having really heavy periods when that hasn't been addressed, you know, it, it's more, I guess, it's more obvious as to why there might be an issue. Um, for many people, there's an issue but not an obvious reason until we start to unpack what's going on with their gut. And so, you know, you are what you eat, but you are what you absorb. And so exploring what's going on from that gastrointestinal point of view is often the missing piece for people that, you know, again, don't have an obvious reason as to why they're on the border of, you know, anemia or heading in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a really good clue as to whether it is your digestive capacity which is getting in the way here is if you're that person with chronically low iron despite having supplemented for a period of time. Yeah, so think about it. You are what you digest and absorb, when it comes to your food, the same goes for supplements. If you're not absorbing, retaining that supplement, then it's not going to shift the needle when it comes to something like, say, your iron levels or your ferritin levels. Yeah, 
totally agree. So just thinking about the dietary changes are the few little tips that we will always educate our clients on around, you know, looking to combine your iron sources with vitamin C. So you're probably naturally already doing that when you're having your um, capsicum, broccoli, your nice, you know, beautiful plants on that same plate with your beef or lamb. And for many people, it's about avoiding the caffeine or dairy as these can impair the absorption of the iron when, it, when consumed within the same window. Yeah. So it's not only what you eat, but it's just what it's combined with and what you would avoid at that time. Yeah. And look, hopefully not many of you are having your coffee at dinner time with your piece of snack. <laughs> yeah, true. I hope that's not a conversation <laughs> we have to have, but you know, maybe one to consider. An espresso martini, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, low iron and low ferritin is what we usually see, but sometimes there are cases of high levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, high ferritin for me is a signal of potentially some inflammation mm-hmm. within the body. So not something that we see that frequently, but it does have to be um, considered. And, of um, course, there's hemochromatosis, mm. so we look at the genetic stuff as well. Yes, mm. yeah. So be conscious that that is also a possibility when it comes to getting your results. So ready to move on to our next little micro? Yes. So B12. B12 is one that we look at. You'll find it in similar sources to where you'll find your iron, so your red meat, your eggs your liver, um, basically animal proteins is where we get B12. So those at risk of low B12 levels um, are people on a plant ba- plant-based diet or primarily a plant-based diet because we, we, we can't get B12 from plant-based foods. There are some fortified foods, but personally I'm not a fan at all of recommending that we rely on those fortified foods like nutritional yeast to support B12 levels. Gut health is something else that will get in the way of B12, so particularly low stomach acid, so poor ability to break down and access that B12. Anybody with a history of being on antacids or proton pump inhibitors will be at risk here. Um, there are certain genetic um, polymorphisms that, or genetic variations that people may have which will predispose them to lower B12 levels. So if you're not somebody that sits within those um, first two categories of of a predisposition to low B12, yet you have low B12, then looking at those genes may be be something that we do to understand why you've got low levels of B12. Yeah, I think it's important to look at that together because it can definitely change your prescription, Mm. especially if it is someone who might need some short-term supplementation because we know that B12 is so essential for energy but it has a really important neurological role. Mm. So if we look at the reference range, you know, it's very broad, unfortunately. Lucy goosey. <laughs> it's so broad. Almost as bad as TSH, but we'll get to that. Um, and we're looking for like a 500, yeah, and people are like less than 250 and it can really affect our neurology. So not only memory and cognition, but our long-term brain health. And that's something that is not to be taken lightly. And I think it's really important that we, Again, look for that optimal reference range, but understand there's that potential genetic role and um, understand. So, again, test instead of guessing. Yeah. So, like, labs here in Australia, their references will often start from about 195, 185 picomoles per litre and go all the way up to 700 picomoles per litre. So, that's huge. Um, And you definitely don't want to be down towards that lower end. What is it? You don't want to be in the bottom third. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, of course, we start with food and the gut as always. 
and there may or may not be some short-term supplementation. Our ultimate goal, of course, is though to go root cause and to allow this athlete of ours or yourself, of course, to have really optimal levels without needing supplementation in this case. Yeah, yeah. But now, what about your vegan athletes? Would they be taking your B12? Most of my vegan athletes would be on a B12 yeah. if they're purely plant-based. Mm-hmm. There's no eggs, there's no fish, there's no traces of meat. They, they would be on a B12 supplement. Yes, I agree. Um, and I usually would like to see a number on paper before starting to supplement, mm. but it is water-soluble. There's, there's not a lot of risk of being on that supplement. And you can usually assume that if someone has been plant-based for um, at least 12 months that their B12 levels would have started to decline at least. Mm. Yeah. And this is why if you are looking at a plant-based lifestyle, you don't wait a year to do your blood test because a lot of any of the issues or symptoms or, you know, um, results of having that low B12 could have totally be avoided if you acknowledge that you just can't get adequate B12 from a plant-based diet. Like, I don't know why we need to argue about that. (laughs) Yeah, you just can't. And we're really one of the only plant-based animals on the planet, if we choose to be vegan, that aren't getting B12. Yeah. You know, we're not eating little insects if mm. we're purely plant-based like, you know, your sheep or your, your cattle might be doing. So you just have to wave the white flag and actually look at a supplement. And like I said before, a, a fortified nutritional yeast is not going to do the job. No. But also when we look at supplements, I don't want you guys to start going to Coles and buying what's on discount. So, you know, we've got to always try and think about where we're investing our time and money when we're supplementing. And so this is where I'd be personally looking at like either an activated B or understanding more about the person's entire picture and prescribing something of really high quality. Yes, definitely. definitely awesome. Definitely. So the next vitamin um, that we're going to look at is vitamin D. One of my faves, actually. Mm-hmm. Why is it one of your faves? I just think it's really underrated. And yes. in Australia, of course, this is where we are. And I'm from North Queensland, right? So I come from this crazy slip, slop, slap culture. And don't get me wrong, I don't want anyone getting skin cancer, but I really think we've taken it too far in Australia and, you know, similar countries. And so, you know, what we're seeing is people totally afraid of the sun, covering up all year round. And sitting on the border of seasonal affective disorder, the acronym spells SAD for a very like obvious reason because mm. vitamin D is so crucial for your mood, but the obvious is energy production, metabolic health, cardiovascular function, and bone health long-term. Yeah. So we've got to be really optimizing vitamin D. And where we are in Victoria, it's not always possible. So, you know, Townsville, Darwin, et cetera, quite different, but um, still really needs to be looked at closely and holistically yeah i I think the point you make around the slip slop slap message here in australia is a really really relevant one interestingly enough i was just speaking with a client who's from south africa and vitamin d was never discussed as a nutrient that needs to be assessed i i assume because they don't have the same slip slop message there but here in australia it's not just our victorian based or melbourne based clients who've got low vitamin d levels i have got countless number of clients in Queensland, the Northern Territory and WA who have low levels of vitamin D because of the slip slops that message or because we're just not getting out and about enough these days. I think the other reason is definitely that we're inside too much on our bums in front of our tech and that's the other challenge when, you know, our first recommendation to help boost vitamin D is to prioritize natural sunlight between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And then nearly everyone that you work with is like, oh, I'm inside. And that's exactly one of the reasons why 
they're struggling to optimize their vitamin D levels. And so a lunchtime walk is the solution to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's always that conversation about managing time and whether, you know, one can make that a priority. But I I think it's such a lovely way to look at supporting your vitamin D naturally. It just also depends on the time of year. So blood testing for for vitamin D, I actually like to see summer and winter Mm. because a lot of people can absolutely optimize their vitamin D to our ideal reference range of 100 100 to 150 nanomole per liter. And they can do that for at least half of the year. Mm. And so that therefore the only recommendation will be that sun exposure. But then as we move into the winter and, and certainly south of the equator, um, it becomes really challenging because even between those hours, the sun is not at the right angle to come through the atmosphere to hit our skin for the production of vitamin D. So in winter, many of my clients are taking a supplement purely based on where they live and also those lifestyle factors we've discussed. Yeah, and that 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 reference or that goal of 100 to 150 animals per litre can easily come down, levels can easily come down by about 100 or sorry by about 20 nanomoles per litre over the winter months. So there can be a big difference between summer to winter in terms of vitamin D levels. I would agree, and I've seen even more than that. And that's where I think it's really interesting when you see a client who's had vitamin D done before and they've got historical um, data and you can look at the month and you can Mm. see that, of course, towards the end of winter, they're bordering on even sort of deficiency the reference range is sort of 49 to 50 on the bottom end of the reference range. And then, you know, in summer, it's the opposite scenario. So I think it's important to understand what your body does seasonally because otherwise you spend all summer increasing your D and then all winter decreasing it and you go around and around in circles each year. Whereas what you could do is understand what your profile looks like between the seasons and most likely supplement for a portion of the year. Yes, yeah. And really important that you are repeat testing vitamin D. You don't want to be supplementing blindly. You know, it's a fat-soluble vitamin. You can, your stores may increase to levels beyond the 150 nanomoles per litre, which becomes less than ideal, uh, and potentially, you know, beyond that 200 nanomoles per litre when it becomes toxic. So you don't want to be supplementing with vitamin D blindly. You know, work with a professional to understand what your dosage should look like and when your repeat testing should be scheduled. You raise a really good point because I'm seeing a lot of people who might not want to take, you know, a small dose every day. So what they're doing is buying, you know, 7,000 international units, 10,000, 20,000 international units and just like dropping these pills, right? And with really no understanding of what their body's doing, how they're responding, how they're absorbing and what, of course, the blood test then looks like. The issue with vitamin D in Australia is it's been taken off the Medicare list, one. Um, And even if it is tested, you'll find it really hard to get another one through the door in the same year. Yeah. And so this might be where you want to prioritize a small out-of-pocket expense. I believe it's like a $30 to $40 test though. So it's not going to break the bank. But just as an FYI, in case you do want to test in summer and winter, we haven't set you up for a rude shock that Medicare is not going to come to the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cover it. Especially if you do sit within the reference range, your doctor definitely won't be allowing that repeat test within a 12-month period. So we've looked at iron, ferritin, B12, vitamin D. Are there any others here that we've missed? No, I'd actually love to look at blood sugar balance next because I think this is something that really looks at 
you know, a lot of the reasons why, well, the Western world at least are having issues because of the food that we've been prescribed and in the athletic space, the kind of recommendations we're seeing around not only what to eat day to day, but what to do in like race week, the day before, on race day, and the ridiculous amounts of carbohydrates that we're being prescribed as athletes. So should we go there? Totally. I was just going to say, I think it's very easy for athletes, particularly if you're that person who's who's preparing for a long course triathlon and you're training up to twice a day or up to 14 sessions a week and you're, you know, you're healthy, your, your body comp is where you want it to be. It is very easy to be over consuming carbohydrates and potentially getting complacent with the type of carbohydrates you're consuming. And then that's when we see these markers of blood sugar balance really being quite off yeah. when we first start working with somebody. Especially someone who otherwise looks quite healthy. They're not the walking picture of, say, metabolic disease or anything like that. Um, But, yeah, it really does give us a bit of an understanding as to how, I guess, upside down we've had our plate. So Mm. it's been very high carb, low fat for a lot of people. And so we start with blood glucose levels, which is a fasting measurement of obviously the glucose in the blood, but it really shows us where you sit on that carbohydrate tolerance spectrum. Yeah, it's a rudimentary marker, yeah, at that level. Yeah, for sure. Very um, sensitive to what you've eaten the days prior, though, so we have to look at that for Mm. context. But we'd like to see, you know, a a five or less, so a five um, millimole per litre or less. So on the other side of five is where we can start to explore other markers, which we'll get to, of course, but it looks like you're moving in the direction of carbohydrate intolerance um, and it's often about lowering your carbohydrates as a result. Mm-hmm. So the next one that I like to look at actually if um, fasting blood glucose is starting to head in, in slightly the wrong direction is that HbA1c, so glycated hemoglobin, mm-hmm. because that gives us an understanding of your blood sugar levels over about a three-month period. So it gives us much, yeah, better understanding of what your blood sugars, that fasting blood glucose has looked like over an extended over period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So HBA, HbA1c, we're ideally looking for something at 5.3 or less. Percent. Yes. Um, and any higher than that is, again, where we start to have that really deep discussion into blood sugar control and the amount of carbohydrate that that individual may be consuming day to day. Well, it's this that we use to determine where you sit on the low carb spectrum. Mm. Like I hear so many people that are self-taught, right? So they listen to a few podcasts, they've decided they want to do keto and have less than 50 grams a day. Yet if they've got a good HbA1c, like a five, great blood sugar control, they don't need to be eating that little. It's a sliding scale, and I think this inf- information will allow you, or allow us to prescribe where you sit on that low-carb spectrum. Now, HbA1c is often one that's not done for anyone that looks quite healthy, but you definitely can have a higher blood glucose, so over five, and a very good or exceptional HbA1c. So we don't want to put all of our eggs in that blood glucose basket, And so where possible, we're trying to get the HbA1c to understand the trends. And of course, as we move towards six, like 5.86 is where it's that pre-diabetes and diagnostic criteria for type for diabetes in general. 
So we want to understand that, of course, for those that are at risk. Yes, yeah. And then the next one we'll look at is your insulin levels, so your fasting insulin levels, where ideally we're wanting to see between three and five, which, again, is very different to the reference ranges that we might see on the lab report, where I think it's usually... um, A 10. Is it? I thought it was 18. Mm. So what I think is really depends on the report, yeah, on on the, the lab, lab actually, which mm-hmm. is another point we haven't raised. But I think this is really interesting because a lot of people will come to you and in their mind they're ticking all the boxes. So they've already learned about LCHF, hopefully doing math training. They've got a coach. They're you know they're sleeping and they you know they've learned a lot, but they can't achieve their ideal body weight. And if we see a high insulin, it's going to be a pretty clear explanation as to what the roadblock is to their fat burning capacity. So we have to address this. And of course, it's LCHF. We're needing to be exercising, obviously, if you're not already. um, And it will be fat loss, which obviously is all connected to the above. But this is how we can start to improve that insulin profile. Then, of course, there's that stress conversation that comes into all of the above. You've got to talk about stress um, in this case. Mm. Yeah. Well, blood glucose, HbA1c, insulin, like the the cortisol is still going to really spike the insulin. Mm-hmm. And so it will, look, it will look like you're eating lots of carbs, even if you're keto. Yes. Yeah. And so a stress management conversation often comes here as well. <laughs> and training recovery, you know, or, or training um, conversation, you know, what, what intensity are you doing day in, day mm-hmm. out? What are you doing post-session to help your body recover, help lowering those cortisol levels? That's all really important, especially in talking with somebody who is doing, you know, interval sessions six times a week in the gym four times a week and doing a long ride three times a week. It's so important to assess the intensity of the training and, and why math is, is the chosen protocol, especially yeah, for endurance. Totally. And I love teaching the math formula to someone who's really into their training because usually I see athletes that are all up in their training peaks and their Strava and their data. And as soon as you explain to them what the fuel preference is Mm. at that lower heart rate and how much time they need to be prioritising for speed or interval or, you know, quote, unquote, getting fast, you can really see the penny drop and them understand as to where they've, you know, in most cases had it completely upside down so far too much intensity nowhere near enough base training and i love when they have that epiphany and it completely changes how they recover how they feel their longevity and you know the hormones everything totally and this is where and this is where lchf for athletes gets the bad rap because it's often those athletes who are going out they're still doing all of their high intensity training and reducing the carbs and saying it doesn't work Oh, it's my pet, hey. <laughs> oh, don't come to me and say. <laughs> essentially, all you're doing in those high-intensity training sessions is training a sugar-burning metabolism. Mm. You are not training a fat-burning metabolism. And then you're doing LCHF, so you're not putting any of the fuel that you currently need. So firstly, it's often prescribed incorrectly, like too keto or too much protein or not enough fat or whatever that looks like. But yeah, secondly, you have to pair them up. Your nutrition and your training have to be in synergy, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, I missed a point. I wanted to go back to looking at fasting insulin levels because fasting insulin isn't a test that doctors would often just Mm, do. But but you can have seemingly normal fasting glucose and HbA1c 
with elevated levels of insulin. It can be one of those signs of um, of carbohydrate intolerance, which maybe we wouldn't get if we didn't get the approval for fasting insulin. So I just wanted to give that little side note because it isn't a test that's tested for standard, you know, standardly, but a good one to have. Yeah, I, I just love all three. So I've got that full picture in an ideal world. So, you know, as we go through these tests, there might be some that end up being on your out-of-pocket expense. Mm-hmm. I do not want you to spend anywhere near $500. Um, so it'll be a, usually a conversation with your practitioner. So, you know, by all means, get what you can through Medicare and leave the rest until you come back to myself, Ellie, or who you're working with. And then they can say, all right, no, I do really want you to spend money on this, but let's not worry about that. And then the expense that you are making is more accurate yeah, yeah. and necessary. Yeah. A valid expense and a useful tool to creating the right plan for you. Yeah. So I just want to be really clear with that. So I try and have this conversation with my clients and you know, there's a lot that we talk about. So some things sort of can fall through, but um, you know, they forget the conversation and then they, there's a lot of stress around how much it might cost. So in no way are we putting that expectation on things. It's just about understanding that um, we might then suggest that as a second round, if we're really thinking that there's some signs that we need to understand more. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. So inflammation, this is obviously something we talk about a lot on the show, but I think for athletes, it really needs to be a priority because, you know, we're all focused on performance as we've been discussing, but you can only perform better if you recover more. Yeah. The consistency in your training, which is what creates performance comes from recovery. And a huge part of the recovery process is getting rid of any inflammation that comes from the training stresses, that comes from your diet, that comes from your historical exposure to inflammatory foods. You know, I think that we've got to acknowledge that creating an anti-inflammatory environment is up there as, you know, number one for your recovery, your performance, and then your longevity because this is where it looks at long-term disease risk as well. Yeah. The way I always explain it is that high-intensity training or a large volume of training is going to contribute to some degree of training-induced inflammation. Mm -hmm. And what I want to make sure is that from a dietary perspective, we're not further contributing to that inflammation and that from a dietary perspective, we're doing everything we can to support the resolution of that inflammation within the body. So these tests tests are really important. Um, The first one that I actually look at is homocysteine. Mm-hmm. homocysteine levels, which traditionally are used as a marker of risk for cardiovascular disease. And this is probably number one on the list in terms of tests that um, doctors are hesitant to refer you for, you know, especially if you're somebody between the ages of like, you know, 22 and 42, seemingly healthy, homocysteine is not going to be high on their priority list. It is also one that I believe Medicare has flagged as a test that they don't really want to see doctors over-prescribing or using. So doctors are going to be very, um, they're going to be quite specific about who they approve this test for. Mm. But I think it's a really important one to look at because to use as an understanding of your general inflammation, um, it's really helpful. And actually the reference range that we look to, which is between 7 and 7.5, is very different to the reference range that let's say a, a doctor or a cardiologist might be looking at, which is anywhere between like 3 and 15 is acceptable. 
I know. So it's like, again, Lucy Goosey, as yeah. you said before, because yeah. there's a big difference between seven and 15, like more than a hundred percent. So I think that again, it's really important to understand why you're having this tested because, you know, you might not look to your doctor like a walking risk for cardiovascular disease. So they wouldn't be looking to refer you for this test. But if you're talking to them about your training and your inflammation and your goals around longevity for lowering inflammation, that would be a good conversation starter to get this one through the gates essentially. Yeah. Knowing that it circles back to our B12 conversation. So we were talking earlier about the genetic polymorphism and you know if you've got any of the MTHFR SNPs, it's going to be a predisposition of looking for, you know, impacting your homocysteine levels. So yeah. we want to be understanding more about your, the genetics behind this because that also determines if you need to look at supplementation mm. and if so, what type of supplement. Yeah. And similarly, if you're somebody with the low B12 levels or you're on a plant-based um, diet and therefore that's the cause for your low B12 levels, that could lead to your risk of elevating homocysteine. So, mm. you know, we want to understand what the, that homocysteine figure is as a way of getting the whole picture. Yeah. And, and looking at, do we need to place more attention onto your recovery strategies? You know, what is and what isn't part of your diet? You know, whether we need to look at reducing gluten, reducing dairy um, to, to help with your capacity to clear this excess homocysteine. Yeah, absolutely. And then dietary recommendations come back to our dark leafy greens. You know, mm. we can do a lot with folate here, natural folate, um, which, you know, of course we're always covering because we prescribe so many cups of vegetables per day, mm. but understanding that for many people who aren't hitting those goals, it's about a, a reshift of priorities to support these homocysteine levels well before we look at activated B supplements. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when these numbers are getting high, I always say to my clients, this is not something that you want to carry into old age. Yeah. High levels of homocysteine are highly associated with age-related conditions and aging in general. So you want to bring that homocysteine down, especially before you start to get older. Yeah. And in the off season before there's more inflammation associated with the training that you mentioned as the intensity creeps in towards like an event or a race essentially. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's much easier to do without the extra sort of burden on the system. Yeah. And again, really important to be working with someone who understands these numbers. You know, I have had clients come to me with a homocysteine of 19 whose doctor has said mm. you're fine. Because their doctor doesn't use homocysteine, they don't understand. That's not what even it means. inside the reference range. It's not. I don't even understand yeah. that. But also, lower is not better as well. Yeah. So we said seven to seven point five, um, and the reference range is go, goes as low as three. That's an issue as well. Um, so it's really about that sweet spot in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And then CRP, so C-reactive mm. protein, is another inflammatory marker that um, we can use. This one, doctors seem to be a little more uh, open to testing for, but um, another important marker of inflammation. This one is perhaps a little bit more sensitive to the acute phases of inflammation. So, um, you know, high levels can often be associated with when you're unwell, for example. 
Um, but if there's chronically elevated levels, then it means there's work to do there to help manage to manage the CRP. Um, Steph, to the best of your knowledge, does high intensity training in the in the days leading into testing impact CRP levels? It definitely can. Much buy? Uh, I don't. I don't have a sort of any specific data mm. on whether there's a set percentage because there would be so many variables. Mm. But I definitely always ask my client if they train before their blood test because that actually is quite common yeah. um, because they're wanting to kind of get their faster training done, head to the path lab, and there's a definite potential that that could impact things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, of course, what the, the days prior looked like, absolutely, both diet and um, exercise-wise. So often if this is high, I request a retest in sort of 8 to 12 weeks mm-hmm. because it is really important from um, an immune point of view and a cardiovascular point of view. So um, if it's really high, like five or above, we want to be um, just getting rid of any of those anomalies that might have affected the initial result. Yeah, yeah. You'll, get this, you'll get that one through the line because, or through the door, I should say, because across the line, through the door, <laughs> <laughs> merging my sayings. The, yeah. um, it's in Australia we now do the high-sensitive CRP and um, doctors, as you said, will be quite comfortable to do that if it's quite high to retest. So, you know, make sure that you do request that. Yes. And then the last one on this panel is lipids or the lipid panel. How long have we got? <laughs> How long do we have? Well, um, I just look at trigs first. So triglycerides in that inflammation conversation. So like less than one um, because the, the further above that we go, the more inflammation there is in the system. Um, and again, the associated risk for cardiovascular disease and inflammatory-related conditions, which are nearly all the lifestyle diseases that we have in the West. Yeah. And so that's something I look at um, next before I look at, say, total cholesterol and the rest. Yes. And obviously triglycerides, those elevated triglycerides are going to, you know, correlate very highly with our recommendation to put you further down the scale on your carbohydrate requirements. Mm. Yeah. So... Um, we know that excess carbohydrate intake, particularly processed carbohydrate intake, is going to contribute to elevating triglycerides. And like we said before, athletes, especially those on a traditional carbohydrate loading model, are going to be guilty often of having excess amounts of processed carbohydrates. And this is where I'm sure you're the same. You're like your skin starts to crawl and your blood starts to boil when you look at traditional carbohydrate loading strategies, which is, you know, have your snake lollies, have your white bread, have your breakfast cereal, all of these processed foods, which if you're consuming these every week before your long ride, oh, like it's going to have such an impact on your blood sugar control and your triglycerides. Yeah, definitely. And elevated levels, you know, really need to be addressed for things like insulin resistance, which we're trying to avoid. And so, of course, we're looking at LCHF and then all of our beautiful omega-3-based foods. So, of course, all the fish where possible and then nut seeds, avocado, flax seeds, olive oil, etc. So, this is where we can start to get more specific from a dietary prescription point of view as well. Mm-hmm. Um, on this lipid panel, obviously beyond triglycerides, we're then going to get um, visibility of um, your cholesterol levels, so total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, total cholesterol to HDL ratio. And not all of these have you know, as much as importance as one another. 
So what I tend to dial in on and narrow in on is the total cholesterol to HDL ratio. So it's this figure that's going to give us an understanding of the profile of your LDL particles. So it was for a very long time thought that LDL particles were those particles that were going that were associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease but in actual fact we know that it's understanding what are, what do your ldls look like yeah are they small densely packed or are they large and you know let's say fluffy or not so densely packed that total cholesterol to hdl ratio is going to help us understand that and the lower that total cholesterol to hdl is the better because it shows that you've got those um, those LDL particles, which are not going to get in the way of your health. Yeah, like we've got to stop looking at total cholesterol as this measure of a risk for disease, like heart disease. Cholesterol is so vital; like we would die without it. We it's, forget. We mm. forget that it has like a physiological role in our body: hormones, brain, nervous system, cell function. Like it's so vital. Yet we are still seeing that archaic demonization of total cholesterol in the, you know, the bold or the asterisk or the red on the blood test report and people are being, you know, recommended statin drugs as a result and they've got the fear of God put in them around, you know, heart disease. Mm. When when you unpack the trigs less than one, the total cholesterol to HDL ratio less than 3.5, like there's nothing wrong with that lipid profile. Like it's in fact beautiful and anti-inflammatory in nature. Mm. And, you know, we've also got to stop calling HDL good and LDL bad. Like that's so 1985 and LDLs can be really beneficial when they are large and fluffy, as you say, and not carrying plaque around the cardiovascular system. Yeah. And unfortunately that total cholesterol marker, um, it continues to come down in terms of what that ideal level is when you look at the lab reports. And it was just 10 days ago that I was speaking with a doctor who was expressing her concern around the change in these reference ranges because you know not all doctors are going to adhere to that notion that total cholesterol is the is the ultimate marker of your risk for cardiovascular Mm -hmm. disease not everybody in the western medical profession agrees that total cholesterol is this marker that we need to be looking at Um, and unfortunately there is this this i guess this concern that maybe those those reference ranges are being affected by influence from big pharma. Hmm. I know it's horrific, you know. really. I mean, the statin drug sales it would have had to have decreased significantly in recent years since we're finally, as as a general rule, not being sheep. We're really understanding our own health and being empowered and and you know requesting more information rather than just blindly taking that script to be filled at the local pharmacy. So ask questions um, and do not take statin drugs unless you've had a second opinion (laughs) Yeah, get that or a third opinion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, you you know, there are certain people in the population who may require statin drugs and a very small percentage will respond well. Um, That's why you get that second opinion to understand if that's you that needs those statins. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. But also to be said that some people have the, you know, the genetic predisposition to total cholesterol going up when they start an LCHF mm. diet. Mm. Now, it's it's a small part of the population. You know, normally dietary cholesterol affects your blood levels by about 1%. It's the production in the liver that we see um, influence the blood tests more. But um, just because you're on LCHF and your total cholesterol is going up, doesn't mean that it's not the right protocol for you when you look deeper and understand exactly what we've just been going through. Yeah, 
Awesome. So that's the lipid panel. We've covered quite a bit. Um, we could start to discuss training tolerance and recovery, or we could move that over to part two. I know there's so much more I want to cover about blood testing and what we would look at in terms of, you know, hormones and linking back to some previous episodes. So I think we do a part two of the ultimate blood test for endurance athletes. Yeah. So make sure that you post any comments and questions that you've got about this discussion that we've had whether it be, you know, Instagram, send us an email, um, jump onto the website, but let us know your thoughts, what you want to know more of, because we'll build that into our discussions in the future. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait for part two. And I hope you guys learned so much today. And just remember that, you know, your health is in your control. And I want you to ask questions and really understand your health and how to optimize your performance, recovery and longevity. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.